Why are you still a Christian? Why have you, of all people, not given up? Considering the thousands who have turned apostate, why have you stayed? Well, what gives you the assurance that you won't quit? Well, what gives you the hope that, that though there's many years before you, that in the end you will not be like all of those who have lost faith in Jesus? There's many more years, perhaps, in your life before you'll die. Many more tears before you will go and stand before the Lord. What gives you the confidence that despite not knowing when, that you won't give up on Jesus? Does the Bible really teach that those who are genuinely saved endure to the end? Is perseverance of the saints a biblical thing? Or is it just something that theologians made up to encourage people and to make them feel good? Can the fiery trials of life, the prevailing winds of false teaching and doctrine, the sin nature that is in us, can these things lead me to lose my salvation? That's the question we hope to understand and think about this morning. Can I lose my salvation? Can it slip through my hands like sand? Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering for the sake of Christianity. He's writing to them to offer comfort and to give clarity to them amid the suffering that they are facing. And Peter writes to them to remind them who they are in Christ. Central to our time over the last few months in this letter has been helping to understand what a Christian is and and really help Christians face suffering. As Christians, we saw that we will suffer. We will face trial. We will face difficulty. And so as we travel the difficult paths of suffering in this world, though some have it harder than others, we are reminded that we are not alone. That Christ is with us. That He has suffered for us as an example and for our salvation. But we are also reminded in this letter that we are joined with other Christians who are also suffering. And as Peter draws his letter to an end, as he kind of puts his signature on the letter, the final words that we're going to consider in this letter, and as we close out some four months of of walking through 1 Peter, what's Peter going to say? What final word of encouragement will Peter offer to those who are suffering? Will it be a word of utopian optimism that life's going to get better? Things are going to look look up? The clouds are going to go away? Will will it be a dose of kind of a delusional uh, encouragement? So, you know, get away from the world, hunker down inside the church. Everything will be fine. Wait. Just get it out of the world. Will, will it be an exhortation just to get over it? 
you know, kind of suck it up. Stop being a baby. Everyone suffers, don't you know? It's the way life is. Let's get over it. Stop whining. Stop crying. What kind of encouragement does our Lord have for those who suffer for His sake? Friends, for our answer, we're going to turn to the Bible. We're going to turn to God's Word. Look with me in 1 Peter in chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, I just invite you to grab that one in front of you and open it to page 1017. 1017. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 5, excuse me, for all of you that were just confused. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 6. Hear the word of our Savior. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him, be the, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Bal Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. Though Christians suffer in this world, they endure to the end because they are eternally secure in Christ Jesus. Though Christians suffer in this world, though they face trial and difficulty, some of which are are described as fiery trials, Genuinely saved Christians, those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, endure to the end because they are eternally secure in Christ. So the purpose of our time this morning is to encourage you to persevere, to encourage you to endure suffering, not because you are strong, not because you can hold fast, as we often sing, because He holds us fast. It is the fact that Christ holds us secure. That is what propels and encourages us to endure suffering. And so this morning we're going to look at four ways Christians endure suffering. Four exhortations that Peter has here for us. or Sort of four final summary words. All of this we have seen. None of this is new. And so much of our time this morning is just going to be kind of rethinking about much of what we have thought about over the last four months. It's kind of putting it together neatly and nicely in a, in a summary form. 
How do you, as a Christian, endure suffering? How is it that you endure? What, what are you to do? How do you get through the bad days, the difficult years, the trying tears? How do you get through the pain? First, stay humble. Stay humble. Second, stay alert to temptation. Third, stay hopeful. And fourth, stand firm to the end. First, Peter says, stay humble. How do you endure suffering? How is it that you can get through suffering? What are you to do? Stay humble. Look what he says there in verse 6. The context, again, is suffering. The context is your suffering. What does he say? What's the exhortation? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves, he says. Now, if you look at your Bible just for a moment, he, we talked about humility a bit last week in verse 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This exhortation that we are to have humility toward one another. But here in verse 6, he changes it. And he, and he doesn't have this sort of horizontal focus, uh, humility toward one another. But here is humility towards God. That we could be tempted to be proud toward God. How? By thinking we're in control and not Him. I think the pride that, that Peter has in mind here is a kind of pride, a prideful boasting that, that we somehow have control over our lives. That somehow that we can control the circumstances uh, that hit us every day. That we can somehow get out of and get through hard times. That we have the skills to do that. And that is not true. Peter ends where he began in his letter. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is the Lord of the universe. If you look back just to one page over in 1 Peter in chapter 1, he began the letter by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, those who are chosen Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Listen again. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God is sovereign in salvation. He has called and chosen a people for whom He will save for His own glory. And those whom He has called, He will keep. This is what Jesus taught His disciples in John chapter 6. All that the Father has given to Me will come to Me. And none of them, not one of them, I will let go. Stay humble, He says, by submitting yourself to God's sovereign purposes. Trust that God is in control. Now, Peter here offers us sort of the motivation, the, the, the purpose, the reason why one should submit to God, 
uh, or stay humble toward God. Look what he says in verse 6. So that at the proper time he may exalt you. Stay humble, submit to God, because there's coming a day when you will be honored. When you will be honored, not by those in the world, but by Christ. And so we work not to receive the honor and the praise of men, but the praise of God. The cry of, of, well done, thy good and faithful servant. That is what we work for. That is what we strive for. That is what we endure for. Suffering teaches us to trust God's purposes. To not question God's mighty hand and the suffering that He has allowed. That's That's what Job was wrestling with. He began by praising God and his friends tempted him to curse God. That's how we are tempted in our own lives to doubt the, the purposes of God, to question God's sovereign purposes. If he's truly in control, if he's truly in control, then even silly things like cars being stolen are a part of God's eternal purposes. From the difficult days that are bad to the worst days, God is in control. Stay humble, he says in verse 7, by casting all your anxieties on him. Peter here is writing to a people plagued with anxiety, plagued with cares. Now, friends, we don't have to really think hard and long about cares and anxieties, do we? I'm sure many of us are burdened with with plentiful. They come in a variety of of kinds. They they come at us in various ways. And they often come in in number. You ever considered why that is? We're often burdened by many cares. But notice what what Peter says in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him. All means all. That's what it means. It means every one. All of your anxieties. The Christian Standard Bible translates it this way. Casting all your cares on Him because He cares for you. Cares. Friends, worry is a form of spiritual pride. We worry... We are anxious. Why? Because we are not in control. And when we are not in control, we are mad and angry and frustrated. And we grow anxious and worried because we don't have control. But friends, think for a moment. You're not supposed to be in control. The Lord is in control. The Lord is the one who is in control. And so the psalmist cries, cast your burdens on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Worry is pride. Worry is saying, I need to be in control, God. You're not doing a good job controlling my life. You need to hand the reins over to me. 
It's spiritual arrogance to think that we could control the circumstance of our life. And so Peter, or so Jesus told his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus regularly taught his disciples not to worry about things that were outside of their control. Over my pay grade. That's higher than me. Someone else is in control. Why should I trust God? Why should why why would Peter exhort us to do this? Why should we trust God? Why should we cast our anxieties on him? Well, he tells us in verse 7, doesn't he? Because God cares for you. We could relish in this truth all day. I encourage you maybe to spend your afternoon thinking about just this single verse. Because he cares for you. The Christian Standard Bible again says this, because he cares about you. God cares about you. When no one else does, maybe you don't even care about yourself, God cares about you. God loves you. Friend, I wonder this morning, do you believe that God cares for you? Not just for your neighbor, not just for you know the really good people, but cares for you. He cares about you. Do you believe that when you suffer? Do you doubt God's care when... You were diagnosed with cancer? Or when you lost a child? Or when you faced tragedy that was unbearable and unthinkable? Do you believe that God still cared for you? That He has brought you to these moments of suffering for His glory? And that He will deliver you in His perfect timing? You see, it's God's character that motivates us to trust Him. It's His character. It's it's who He is. what, What Peter is telling us is about God, about His character, what He's like. God cares. God is not flippant. He is not like, ah, it's those little humans down there. I don't have time for their whining and complaining and all their busyness. I don't, I don't, I don't have time for that. I am the eternal God of the universe. The eternal cares for the temporary. God cares for you. The more you meditate on the character of God in Scripture, the more you will cast all of your cares on Him. So if you're struggling this morning, maybe you have a, you have a burden, you have a care in your, in your life, something you need to cast on the Lord. Well, friend, the only thing that's going to motivate you to do that is by meditating on the character of God. The more you, like the psalmist, trust the truth that He will sustain you, the more you trust the truth that He cares for you, the more you will throw your anxieties, your worries, your concerns on Him. What cares consume your thoughts this morning? 
What, what kept you up last night? What's constantly running through your mind this morning? Even now as we sit here, you can feel as if someone was sitting on your shoulders. That's the anxiety, that's the care, or the, the concern, the care that you have, the cares that you have. Brother and sister, throw that on Jesus today. Throw your cares on Jesus today. In suffering, Christians endure to the end by staying humble. By staying humble. Let's look secondly. Stay alert. Not only are we to stay humble in, in, in trial, but we are to stay alert to temptation. Look with me in verses 8 and 9. Uh, Peter writes, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Stay alert, he says. Stay awake, he says. By being sober-minded and watchful. We stay alert by being sober-minded. We've seen this this sober-mindedness throughout the letter. The sobriety of the mind. Peter's borrowing this word, yes, from literal sobriety from alcohol. But he's applying it to spiritual sobriety. Therefore, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, he writes. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The end of all things is at hand, he writes. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Spiritual sobriety is essential to persevering through difficulty. Christians are not to be caught up and drawn away like a drunk when difficulty comes but rather to be sober in their thinking. Sober and reserved. Not anxious and not running around concerned, but rather sort of settled. It means that God's people understand the times they live in. They understand the world that they live in. We live in a fallen world that is broken. This is not our home. We don't set up shop here. We are travelers, traveling to a distant land, a distant home. We are sojourning in this foreign land. And so we act and behave with a palpable sobriety and seriousness about sin and temptation. We're not casual about those matters. We take them all the more seriously because we know we are in the enemy's territory. We do not go a single day without reminding ourselves that we will face difficulty. That this world hates us. But not only that, we see here, we are to stay alert by knowing your enemy. Oh, how you could stay alert is by knowing your enemy. The devil is his name. And notice what Peter says he is your adversary. He didn't say it's God's adversary, though he is. In this context, he says it's your adversary. He describes this adversary and names him as the devil. But here is something unique, something different than than all of Scripture. Maybe you've seen this passage before. Maybe you've memorized it. You know it. You know the devil's a prowling lion. This is the only time in the Bible 
that the devil is ever referred to in this way. He's normally referred to as a serpent, a snake, right? But here he's referred to as a a roaring lion. Well, if you know your Bibles well, there is another lion that roars. Through Moses, God prophesied that God would raise up from the tribe of Judah a lion. One who would rule God's people like a lion. He would would defeat God's enemies. But here what we see is a pathetic knockoff. An imitator. A fake. You see, that's what Jesus warned His disciples. That the devil masquerades as an angel of light. That He often looks good on the outside, but inwardly. Peter describes him here as a prowling lion. The imagery is so vivid for us this morning, right? Uh, If we're not dumb people, I hope you would not play around with a lion. You see them on the news all the time, you know. um, Guy buys lion, lion eats him. Shock. That's That's an amazing story. Hello, you buy lion, it's going to eat you. Like lions don't, that's not a pet you want to take home, right? Like, you know, go get a dog, right? Don't get a lion. You don't don't put a lion in your house, right? We know because lions do one thing. They devour, they eat. And that's what Peter says here. He is seeking someone to devour. And I love the way the the, uh, Christian Standard Bible does this. It, It says seeking anyone to devour. Well, that really rang in my ear when I read that this week. Anyone. Anyone. The devil is no respecter of persons. He will destroy anyone at any time. This is why James exhorts his readers, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. Resist him. Or Paul in Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is scheming to get you to devour you. Devour you in what way? Devour you by following him. Apostasy is what Peter has in mind here. Following a fake. An antichrist. Not the real lion of the tribe of Judah. Friends, I want to remind you this morning that when you feel conviction, that the Holy Spirit will never accuse you. If you feel conviction and you feel accused, that's not the work of the Spirit. That's this lion we're talking about here. You see, the adversary is an accuser, and he accuses God's people. How could you really be a Christian? How could you do that and and be called a child of God? No, the the Holy Spirit does not convict in that way. His conviction always leads to repentance. Do you think Peter knew this adversary? Do you think that Peter knew this lion? On the night... Of the Last Supper, Peter faced this lion face to face, did he not? And he fell. Peter knew, and we must too know, 
that we are no match for Satan. We are no match for Satan. He will devour us. Don't bring that lion home. He will eat you. This is why, as Paul says, we need the whole armor of God. This is why Peter writes then in verse 9, resist him. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Stay firm. Don't believe his devilish lies. As Jesus told his disciples, when the devil lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Our enemy seeks to lie. He's a liar. And that's where he's going to attack. He's going to cause you, he's going to give you some lie. He's going to give you something. He's going to cause you to doubt. Perhaps God's care, God's goodness, God's grace. He's going to doubt, he's going to cause you to doubt whether or not God could really save you. Resist him. Flee from him as, as James says. Run. Don't play with him. Look also here. Resist the devil by knowing, by knowing something. Notice what he says in verse 9. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood. Now, we, we, that's kind of old language, brotherhood. Peter doesn't mean just men, but, but he has in mind Christians, brothers and sisters. It's encouragement, is it not, to know that when we face the enemy, we face him with others? That we're not alone? That we have a brotherhood throughout the world? That when they are persecuted, we are persecuted? And when we are persecuted, they are persecuted? We are together with them in this battle of evil. Brothers and sisters, you should have more in common with an Arab brother or sister than you do with an American neighbor who's not a Christian. You have more in common with brothers and sisters throughout this world who are suffering for the sake of Christ. They might have a different skin color than you. They might have a different background than you. They may be rich. They may be poor. It doesn't matter. If they claim the blood of Christ, you are with them. I just encourage you this morning to think and see how others around the world are suffering and find encouragement from that. Encouragement in your suffering, that I'm not alone, that others are suffering. In suffering, Christians endure to the end by staying alert to the various temptations that the enemy has laid. Number three, stay hopeful. In verses 10 and 11, Peter summarizes here for us really the whole letter. And he writes, stay hopeful. Stay hopeful by waiting on God. Look with me in verse 10. He writes, and after you have suffered a little while. You might want to write that verse down the next time you're going through suffering. A little while. Little by no accident, Peter wrote that word of encouragement. Wait on God, he says. Just a little while longer. Just a little bit more. It's just going to be a little while. It just, just wait. It's okay. Just a little bit more. Little bit. That's a sweet word of encouragement, isn't it, when we're suffering? Just a little bit more. 
and it'll be all over. Just a little bit more. As the psalmist sings, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and I find, and in his word I find hope. My soul waits for the Lord. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Hope in that word this morning. Stay hopeful that, that it's just a little while longer. Decades of suffering will feel like a little while after a trillion years. After a trillion years of living in the presence of God, a life of suffering will feel like a little while. Stay hopeful, he says in verse 10, by trusting God. Trust the character of God, he says. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, not the God of half grace, not the God of a little grace, the God of all grace, the God who is abundant in grace. Trust the character of God. He is gracious God. He's a gracious God. Trust the call of God, he says in verse 10. The God who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. God has called you. He has invited you to be a part of his family. God doesn't have a, a practice of uninviting anyone he invites to his family. You've been chosen to suffer for God's glory. Count that a sweet privilege. A sweet privilege to be counted worthy to suffer. You've been called by God. Trust that call. God has saved you. Trust the call of God. Trust the confirmation of God. He will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He, he lines up really four words that all really mean the same thing. So I don't think we should find you know, uh, separate meaning from these words. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Really all have really semantic range of similarities. In essence, Peter is saying God is going to blow your mind with what he's about to do. Trust him. Trust that he will confirm you. That when you turn up into heaven, he will not cast you away. The meaning is simple. Those whom God has truly called to salvation will endure till the end. We could say it another way. Genuine saving faith is enduring faith. Genuine saving faith is enduring faith. There's only one kind of saving faith, and that's faith that endures. Faith that doesn't endure is not saving faith. They're never saved to begin with. Saving faith is enduring faith. Our brother R.C. Sproul wrote this. We are secured not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. That's what Peter is saying here. That's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that, listen, you are held tight in the hands of your Savior. He will never let you go. As I've often said, you can't mess this up. Praise God. In suffering, Christians stay hopeful because they are eternally secure in Christ. And finally, stand firm to the end. 
Verses 12 through 14, uh, Peter concludes by you know, giving us some, some greetings, a final greeting, if you will, a, a, a final goodbye. He tells us that he has written this by uh, his brother Silvanus, a faithful brother as he regards him. That's probably his secretary who penned this, who actually dictated and wrote these words. Or perhaps it was the man who carried it, the courier, who brought the letter to the churches. We're not really sure. But we understand that, that the purpose of this letter is written out, isn't it, in verse 12? I've written briefly to you for this purpose, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. What is this grace of God that he refers to? Well, friend, it refers all, to all that God has done for Christians. That's what the grace of God is. It's all that God has done for Christians. All those things that, that he has written out in this letter. Every one of them that God has done. Every single one that Christians have been called to salvation, saved by God, and are the point of God's redemptive purposes. The grace of God that Christians are holy, born again, God's treasure. That they are honorable in this world, good spouses, good citizens. Christians are in this way like Jesus, good stewards and blessed by God. Christians are sheep with a shepherd. And finally, Christians are secure in Christ. This is the true grace of God that God has called his people to trust, to believe in, to depend on, to, as Peter writes, stand firm in it. Stand firm in the grace of God by trusting that these things do identify you, that you are holy. That you are called by God. That you are God's treasure. This is who you are eternally. Today, tomorrow, and for the next trillions of years into eternity future. This is who you are. It will never change. It will never become less. This is who you are. Trust in that. Stand firm in that. Don't run from that. When the enemy causes you to doubt, remind yourself of that truth. I am held fast in the hands of my Savior. Though Christians suffer in this world, they endure to the end. Praise God. Not because they can keep themselves. Not because they are held fast. Because Jesus holds them fast. May you be encouraged, Christian, to endure suffering because you are secure in Christ. Brother and sister, stay humble. Stay humble. Stay alert to temptations in your life. Don't ever wake up thinking temptation is not there. It's there. The enemy is ready to devour you. Stay hopeful. God has secured you in Christ. And finally, stay firm. Stay firm until that day when we all gather together and receive the crown of glory. Can I lose my salvation? I think that's the wrong way to look at that. I conclude this from our brother R.C. again. If it were up to us, if it were up to us, I don't think any of us would persevere, he wrote, and we would have very little to be secure about. However, the concept, as I understand it biblically, is that God promises that no one will snatch us out of the hands of Christ. 
that he will persevere or preserve us. Amen. Not even death can snatch us from the hands of God. And may there be peace to all who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we give praise and glory to you because you care for us, because you will one day honor us. We praise you because we are secure in you and in you alone. We relish in this truth that no one, no false teacher, no devil will ever snatch us from your hand. That though we face a myriad of difficulty and trial, oh Lord, that it is well with our soul. All hell may come upon us, but we are still in your hands. Bless these saints today. May they see peace, I pray. May they know and experience peace. And may they rest in the peace that will come. The peace that all of us in Christ will one day experience when you call us to your eternal glory. It is for your glory we pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.